hello, 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 hello. I'm Sophie and this is Sophie's Philosophy. In this fantastical episode of Sophie's Philosophy, I get to speak to the barefoot parenting coach and the mum who crashed Twitter, B Marshall. B is challenging the status quo of what we all believe as parenting. She ditched off the ways of super nanny and focused on connection. Reward charts were swapped for mother's instincts. She started saying yes. B's philosophy is yes parenting. Yes parenting is simply parenting with unexpected kindness. B caught my attention when she was interviewed on this morning over two years ago. A mother sitting there with bare feet and trusting childhood. My tribe, I thought. My tribe. B, thank you so much for joining me. Although not really joining me, we're doing this so via Zoom. Um, so y- humans who challenge the norm are the ones that make me curious. And you are one of them humans. Um, when you are a person who challenges the status quo, how do you manage the onslaught from people who um, take it to extremes with their own views? Any of that backlash, I always find it hard. But by that, by that particular one you're talking about, I had kind of already gotten used to that stuff. So I know now, don't look at the comments. The hardest thing is when people come in the back door, so they'll send me a message via my contact form, or via messenger or something because I can ignore Twitter I can ignore a lot of it um, and it's very it's very interesting because I wholeheartedly believe everything that I stand for even though sometimes my understanding might change and then I might then change my kind of practices or my beliefs but in the moment I wholeheartedly believe it and when people then use that against me find it really 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 difficult what i found funny though was after that um that episode of this morning when i was debating discipline on the sofa was that there was this um article that went out i think via mum's net it said the mum who crashed twitter i was like what and apparently the reaction so that debate had caused such an influx of traffic in Twitter that it had caused, trif- uh, caused Twitter to have a jam and to basically break down temporarily. Get in. That's insane. Well, I guess you can say that you know you've caused a bit of a stir when you've crashed a social media platform. And as uh, Oscar Wilde said, there is only one thing in life worse than being talked about, and that's not being talked about. Uh, so at least you can rest assured that you are being talked about, B. So on with the next question. Um, B, you are a yes parenting coach. What is the most common question of parents fearing the yes word? The the most common question is, how do I get my child to? Or how do I make my child whatever it is? I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's brush their teeth, eat their food, be on time. It's this whole, how do I get them to? And it's hearing that control that just comes through above and beyond everything else so i hear their desire to stop with the discipline so i don't the interesting thing about the word discipline is that the the original root of the word which comes from disciple means someone who uh, follows because they want to learn and so i would say in that sense in my family there's incredible discipline 
because you know i follow my boys and want to learn from them they follow me and want to learn from me so like actually there's amazing discipline going on here but in terms of that whole punishment and reward dynamic people do when they start to make this connection that okay i can see how this relates to fear i see how i'm using fear to try and manipulate for want of a better word most parents probably wouldn't recognize that they're manipulating no, I agree. yeah i agree but um, yeah, you know, they start to see, oh, okay, yeah, I am using fear and I don't want to use fear. Like I think people start to make that connection, but they still want to have the control. And that's the biggest thing. The biggest thing I think for parents is I really want to have this connection and respect and all that kind of stuff, but I still want control. So that's the biggest thing that people come to me with. Um, and what I've learned over the years, so I, when I started out, I was very much doing my, like practical parenting coaching and practically coaching them through how to be a yes parent, how to find a yes response, how to do things differently. And although I do still do some of that, um, I do it mostly in an online environment, my one-to-one -one coaching is actually going, okay, I hear how much you want your child to do that. Let's look at what's going on with you. So I'm doing one-to-one -one therapeutic stuff around healing trauma um because that desire to control i can connect to that like you know i used to be so controlling i really really get it so obviously i don't want to play the blame game but do you feel that the influences around you led you to believe that this was the way to do it yeah so i mean i very much i grew up in a really kind of pretty typical middle class english family um like mum did uh, mum essentially stopped work to have kids but she had amazing kind of little businesses that she was able to run from home and then she went back to teaching once we were all at school uh, dad works as a town planner and so we had like I, I just remember there was a real sense of like well no we're, we're the parents and you do what we say and I also remember things like um I don't, I think I can count on less than five fingers how many times my parents ever apologized to me. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, don't, I don't say this in a kind of, I used to say this in a very accusatory blaming way. To me now, it's just like they were absolutely doing their best with the resources and yeah. the knowledge that they had. And I get that. And I also now can see all the incredible things they did. Um, and I don't, I'm really aware that I don't want to sound in any way like I'm bashing them, but you know, we were smacked. Mm. and we might be sent to our room or we might have like um occasionally have pocket money takeaways i remember there being a real lack of consistency though i remember sometimes being really worried that like i was about to get into loads of trouble and then i didn't get into trouble and then other times i wasn't expecting it and suddenly i was in loads of trouble and i just almost didn't know why yeah so i think that i think that that and also just the positions of authority within most children's experience of the world, and I say most children, because uh, like you, I've chosen to educate my children very differently. So my, although my eldest, he's 14, he now goes to school, he, that was his choice. Like he said at the end of, uh, well, when he was 13, he said, I think I wanna go to school. So mm -hmm. he goes to school, his decision, his choice, I completely support him in it. And yeah. if he turns around tomorrow and says, that was a great few months in school. Can I come home again? Yes. My other son is home educated. He's 12 and a half. And what's very interesting to me when I speak in the media 
um, and do radio interviews and things, especially if it's around school, this whole idea of like, well, how will they learn to respect authority? And I'm just like, well, what, do, what does that even yeah. mean? Yeah, I agree. And why are adults suddenly in authority? What gives an adult the right to have authority? What you're actually saying is how are your children going to learn to submit to the power that other people can have over them? And I just want to fuck off. I'm so with you on that one, B. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because although we live in a democracy, and I say that with my, you know, inverted commas, although we live in a democracy, it seems like it's still a very arbitrary one. So there's still this authority and hierarchy and workplace, school, parenting. And it still seems to be accepted by the majority as the way. Um, yet there is this minority of people that are, I suppose, are starting to do underground movements, things like what you're doing and um, schools like Summerhill in, you know, a few years, perhaps another century, perhaps another couple of centuries, it will slowly start to change. Um, so with your eldest son, Peep, um, and his choice of going to school now, how is he transitioning from a free environment um, to a highly structured environment? The school he's chosen is one of the academies that was recently um, uh, brought, uh, blasted by The Guardian um, in an article all about uh, consequence rooms and isolation booths and things like that. I mean, he, I, it's not, it is, if I was to choose a school for him, that is not the school I would choose. <laughs> but the, I think what's interesting is that he's made, he's made this choice to go to school. And when he said to me, mum, I think I want to go to school, I just said, okay, well, talk, talk to me about that. Like, what's led you to that decision? What are you expecting? Have you thought about what might be difficult? You know, all these kinds of things. Um, and he is, in terms of how the school would see it, he is a good boy. You know, I mean, like, he's happy to be there. He doesn't like English, but he likes all his other subjects. He's got friends there. He just he just gets on. He's he's chosen to put himself in that highly structured situation, and he's happy with that structure. Um, I think it's very very different if you're there without choice. So to go back to your question, yeah, I don't actually feel that the the highly structured authoritarian system of the school is having any kind of impact, negative or positive. It just is what it is. Yeah. And he's very happy to slot into it yeah. because that's the environment that right now he's choosing to be in. I think that is such an interesting observation that you said there, be about the fact that Pete has had choice in being there. And I think that makes the experience a totally different one. You know, he's owning that um, and he knows that he can have the choice to, you know, make another decision if he so wishes and that you fully support him in that. Um, so do you feel we as a society still have a way to go with realising it's not the kids who are bad, but the environment around them, potentially, that has brought on what many deem as bad behaviour? Yeah, I think we've got a long way to go. I, I think we've got a long way to go because culturally we're still using words such as naughty mm. or misbehaving. Or, you know, with tiny little children, like, you know, they're a monster or, you know, they've got you wrapped around their little finger. You know, we, the language that we have around children, and I don't think many people are conscious of that language. So we have this language around children that, you know, is just going in on a subconscious level. And 
I think that it's being spoken and heard all the time. And until someone has a moment where they go, whoa, like, I mean, I literally had, I haven't always been this kind of parent. So I used to be very like super nanny, super controlling, very fear-based, very authoritarian. Um, and then I literally did have like a moment. I mean, it was across the course of a week. Oh yes. Can you tell us more about what happened in that week to lead you to your enlightened ways? Yeah. So, um, the first thing was we had, uh, we used to have every full moon, we used to have a full moon pizza party and I'd make all the dough and all the tomato sauce and loads of people would come and they'd bring toppings. Everyone would make pizzas, they'd go in the oven and then we'd all share them. It was really fun. And my eldest son at the time, he was about two and a half and he went up to my friend. She was at the side, she was getting drinks for her daughters and he said, can I have a drink? And I went, and obviously I am tuned in and he did not say please. He just said, can I have a drink? So I went over and I was like, what do you say? You know, what's the magic word? All that stuff. And my friend looked at me, she went, B, he asked me in the most lovely way. It doesn't matter that he didn't say please. He's only been on this earth two and a half years. The fact that you can even ask for a drink is wonderful. You know, if you say please and thank you, then he, he'll just pick it up. Well, I was inside, I was like, well, I think I wasn't, don't you dare talk to me like that. But inside I was thinking, that's the biggest load of rubbish I've ever heard. You know, like, yeah. what the hell are you talking about? And then a couple of days later, I'd gone to uh, have a cup of tea with my friend. And her son was nine months younger than Peep, my eldest. And she'd been at a, so, yeah, so he was basically two, just turned two. She'd been at a play group. She'd been playing with her son and there was another little child. And basically her son had for some reason hit or pulled hair or something of the other child. The other child started crying. So my friend just moved her little boy to one side, tended to this other boy, looked around, the mum was coming over. And she said to the other mum, she said, I'm really sorry. My son just, I don't know, did whatever he did. Um, and uh, I you know, kind of just said, you know, I hope he's okay. And she then went off with her son to play somewhere else. And this mum came over and said, well, aren't you going to make your son say sorry? And my friend said, no, I've said sorry to you. I made sure he was okay. We're playing over here now. She said, well, you need to make him say sorry. He needs to know that he did wrong. And, da, da, da. and so my friend said to me, what do you think? And I said, well, yeah, I think he should have said sorry. And she said, well, why? I, and I just said, well, because, you know, we need to say sorry. We need to realize that we've done wrong. And she said to me, mm, I don't agree. She said, because she said, you say sorry because you realize inside you that something's not quite right, that perhaps you've said something in a way that the other person has felt hurt by or, you know, whatever. And I said, yes, but our children still need to learn that that's what we do. I, I just had this mindset that you have to teach children all the time. Mm. Um, and she said, I'm really just not sure about that. She said, the thing is, I remember being told to, to say sorry. And I hated it. I hated being told to say sorry. Well, my goodness, that took me back to practically every time I had to sit outside the room until I was ready to say sorry. And actually the shame that goes along with that. And I started connecting with it and I was like, yeah, okay. So all my beliefs started crumbling. And then a couple of days after that, I was at the playground with my boys. Um, so my youngest son was at this point about one. And my boys were just playing really happily. 
and another little boy, he was about three, he was running around, mum was sitting on a bench, it was quite cold. And she was called him over, said, you need to put your coat on. He said, I don't want to wear a coat. She said, yes, it's cold, you need to put your coat on. And this whole kind of thing that, you know, we've all seen or even done. And I had this like amazing experience of just being an observer. And I watched it and I just went, oh my God, like he is saying, I don't need a coat. She is not listening to him. Of course she's cold because she's sitting still and he's running around. He doesn't need his coat. And I just realized that, I mean, I'd been, I had done that, you know, I know best. Yeah. I'm not listening to you. You clearly don't know best because you're a small child. I'd done that so many times. But in that moment, I was like, right, all of this is about control. All of this is about us fearing that if we can't control our children, then they're going to grow up to be, I don't know, some kind of feral adult. <laughs> although maybe that's not a bad thing but yeah the, the fear is if we don't teach our children all this stuff and if you know we don't make sure that we know best then they're not going to be able to function as adults I think that's ultimately the fear and I just saw it and I thought okay that's it I cannot do this anymore when you made that because I've had that revelation with my children from quite a young age and I remember doing the whole coat thing and then then saying no and then realizing oh yeah they can make their own decision and it was then that I started watching them and realizing how wise they were, even at the age of, you know, pre two, how switched on they are. Have you had those experiences? Oh, absolutely. With children of all ages, even babies, even babies. Yeah. You know, baby, if, a, if an adult present with a baby is truly tuned in and listening to that baby, not tuned in as in they're the primary carer and they're really tuned in, just tuned in in a human connection way, even that baby can communicate very clearly what it needs in that moment whether it's i'm overstimulated i just want some space i want to be close whatever it is and when you know when we do take that time to observe and to listen it's just amazing and it's we also don't take the time to observe and to listen to other adults i mean it's just something that we don't do brilliantly in our culture um but i think with children in particular we come at it from a i know best to go back to the, your original question about, I might not phrase it quite right, but that whole idea of children being naughty or bad or whatever, and it being about the child rather than it being about the environment. You know, I, what I do see is more and more people starting to think this way. Yes. So although I think it's still massively the minority, I think it is really changing. So having children for me has really made me reflect on my childhood and me as a little being and how much I just wanted to be trusted and left alone to figure it out. And it's by understanding those frustrations I felt that I can now empower my children to try it, you know, figure it, play with it, see what comes from it. You know, there is no right or wrong. It's happened and there is a lesson to be learned from it, something to be gained. What experience have you had of that? I have it less now because I've done a lot of yeah. work to heal and process and kind mm. of work through that stuff. But I, but I still, you know, my inner child is still a very important part of me. And sometimes she really does need to speak up. Mm. That whole thing of being trusted, I think, is really fascinating because I wasn't trusted. You know, I mean, I... The, there was a very clear expectation that I would go to school, I would do A-levels, I would go to university, you know, I would become 
a teacher or a physiotherapist or a, a, some kind of proper job and then I would get married and I'd have children like it was kind of like that was the general mm -hmm. expectation and also there were expectations about how I would look and what I would wear and you know all that kind of thing and I uh, for various reasons, um, I had a, I had a lot of trauma in my early life, and um, not anyone's fault in particular at all. But I had a lot of trauma early on in life, so I really didn't get the attachment that I needed and stuff. So I actually didn't particularly ever feel that I was loved. I always felt like love was something I had to kind of attain somehow. So I very much grew up desperately trying to please people, whilst also desperately trying to find my own way, and mistakes were seen as getting something wrong in a kind of I needed to be taught a lesson kind of thing or I needed to try harder next time and what I've really learned with my boys um, and what I say to parents is that the safest place for a child to make mistakes is in the safety of their own home mm -hmm. you know if my children are going to make mistakes with money I'd far rather them have access to money and to make mistakes with money mm -hmm. now Mm. when the stakes are not nearly as high as making mistakes of money when you've got rent and council tax and bills and food and all of that stuff to mm -hmm. kind of get your head around that's what happened with me um and i also see you know there's a lot of mistakes that we make you know and the older we get as i mean i guess when we're little the mistakes children are making are well they're just i guess they're still working out just how yeah, to be a human yeah. And the sad thing is, there doesn't seem to be enough time or patience to allow them to figure this out. And we end up focusing on the behaviour that has just happened, rather than sitting with the children and trying to talk it through and understand, and helping them understand and us understand why they did what they did. But this isn't just with kids either. This is in workplaces and with relationships. Um, we just seem to have this knee-jerk blueprint that we end up putting on all different aspects of our lives. They're always doing their best. We, as humans, are always doing our best. Every behaviour has a positive intention. It's always about communication, essentially. What tends to happen is, is I say we, just meaning in general parents, like we as parents tend not to take the time to understand what that intention was behind the behavior. So then we focus on the behavior, trying to teach that lesson, correct them, make sure it doesn't happen again, rather than actually really being present with the child, understanding, hearing. And I mean, there's, I can think of two or three examples straight off the top of my head where, you know, a child has behaved in a way that, you know, conventionally would be seen as absolutely unacceptable really bad behavior, not okay, you know, would be punished. And yet actually, eventually when the child had the opportunity to speak up for themselves, they had the most incredible reason behind their behavior. And I think that that's always the case. It's always the case. Um, it's just so sad. It's so sad that we don't trust children. Yeah. And, and this lack of time, as you say, to actually sit with them and get to the bottom of it 
yeah thing that we have this kind of crazy crazy chaos chaotic life and we've forgotten actually why we were having children in the first place we're expecting them to come up to our level of crazy rather than going down to their level of calm my son once said to me i was trying to get him in his car seat and well i was trying to get us out the house and get him in his car seat and he said he was only about six or something he said mummy when you rush me you actually make me go slower. I am already going as fast as I can. And I just remember I stood back and I said, you just take your time. Let me know if you want my help. And he did, he got in his car seat, he did his things, he buckled up. And then he just said, can you tighten the straps? But I'll tell you what's interesting is, so this is my eldest son, Pete, who is very, very slow. He's just, he's very slow and intentional. You know, he, his whole um, routine, at bedtime is you know he makes his hot water bottle he does his teeth and his inhalers he i mean he does he does all these things and you'd think that should only take like five ten minutes he takes half an hour over it i mean i don't know how he does it but he he just takes his time he takes his time with all sorts of things and you know i've always made space for that and with his younger brother i've helped his younger brother understand that pete just takes his time Pete eats really fast, right? Joss, my youngest son, eats really slowly. So Pete, who is slow at most things, but not food, who has been honoured and respected in his slowness, says to Joss, come on, can you eat faster? Why do you have to take so long? You know, I just see the whole, um, the perfect imperfection of us as humans. <laughs> Absolutely, that's so true, B. And I can safely say that I have two little echoes that remind me every day of my imperfections. Uh, now, in my mid-30s, I came to the realisation that um, I didn't seem to feel. Um, I felt like a very numb human being. So I've been going on a bit of a journey about this. Um, and that's a story for another day. Um, but it made me um, think about how we as a society struggle with children being angry or sad so what we try to do is we try to heal it but um i believe this has had a long lasting or can have long lasting damage um so observing my children i now let them feel when it happens um and so i let them go for it explode say all the things they need to say and then once they um have had their moment however long that takes um, I then go in with them with love. Um, what's your experience of this? Within Yes Parenting, I don't know if you've come across this on my social media, but I have an acronym in Yes Parenting, which is fuck this shit. In response to any kind of behavior or emotional outburst or outpouring. So it, forgiveness, understanding, compassion and kindness. And then this is just a connector word. Then it's silence, holding space, inspiration and transformation. And so what I teach parents is that it doesn't matter what's just happened. It doesn't matter the fact that you're in the middle of the supermarket or granny has just cooked some amazing lunch and, you know, your child's just, I don't know, knocked it off the table in a tantrum or whatever it is. The first thing you've got to do is you've just got to forgive, which is I, I'm not going to hold this against you. And then you step into that place of trying to understand. Then you come to this place of compassion of just seeing this child in front of you who you love who's clearly having you know a different they're dealing with really big emotions in pretty small bodies i mean i find some emotions too big for my body i mean it's crazy 
Then kindness, which is kind of self-explanatory, but people forget about being kind. You know, I think a lot of people in parenting forget that kindness is, you know, it's a really nice thing to do. And then I talk about being silent, which is what you've just described. So actually just allowing your child to have this emotional experience. And I talk about the H of shit is the holding space, which is actually a, it's a physical thing, but it's an energetic and an emotional thing as well. So it essentially communicates to your child. I know like silently communicates to your child. I know that these are really big emotions. I know this is really difficult, but I can hold this space for you. They're not too much for me. And what's amazing is that the human body has this self-healing process where if we're able to have a full outpouring of whatever the emotional response is, we don't retain any trauma at a cellular level. And so and the maximum period of time that generally that will take is 90 minutes. But if someone has the opportunity to do that regularly, they can quite often go through that process in 15, 20 minutes. Um, and so then at the end of that full outpouring, then they'll do the, they might do the kind of the reset breath of like, <gasps> like this, or, or they might just turn around and just say, what's for tea, mummy? Or can we do Lego now? Or whatever it is. And, and that's this inspiration into transformation. And often parents are like, what, what? Like, how have you just gone from full on meltdown to suddenly being fine? But it's because they've had this opportunity to have the full emotional expression that they needed to have. Yeah. Most parents will say to me, I haven't got time for that. And I think, well, you haven't got time not to do that. Yeah. Because every time that a children, a child's attempts to express their emotions is thwarted. And I'm not just talking actually about tantrums or meltdowns. Um, whining, you know, people get really stressed about whining. Whining is almost like there's not enough um there's not enough emotional energy to be discharged in a big way so it's just kind of coming out a little bit at a time a little bit at a time yeah um but actually when we um when we try and suppress or limit or prevent oh my goodness um that emotional outpouring what the body does is it lays down trauma within its cellular memory and so then the body will look for opportunities to not only release whatever emotion is felt in the moment, but also to release some of the trauma that's being held in the cells. Now, this is just because I really am interested in neuroscience and understanding the whole of the body and what's going on in it. And when I realized the relationship between trauma that we carry with us from our childhoods how that is triggered by our children so that then we respond to them in a way that leads to trauma in them. I mean, that was a massive moment in my journey as a parenting expert or whatever you want to call me. Um, but I think it's a really, really key thing because with my boys who used to be shut down and then weren't shut down anymore, you know, I went through quite a long time where those meltdowns were just massive and huge. And, you know, the stuff that they would say to me 
would be like, oh my goodness, like I hate everything, no one loves me, my brother always does this, you never do that. And so many parents want to jump in and say, well, that's not true, actually. You know, I do love it. You know, and actually, our child doesn't need that. Our child just needs to be heard. Yeah. And it's amazing now, you know, they just say, I'm really angry. I'm like, okay, do you want to tell me about it? And then sometimes they'll tell me about it. Other times they, they won't bother. But I think what's really powerful is it builds extraordinary resilience. We, as a culture, we seem to think that resilience is developed by making children do difficult things. And it's not. Resilience comes from our ability to realize that we can sit with discomfort. Yeah. When we know that we can sit with discomfort, which starts with our ability to sit with emotional discomfort, then we have the resilience to respond to the shit that life throws at us or to choose to embark on some really difficult experience like, I don't know, an ultra marathon or even just a five mile <laughs> run in my case. I mean, I like, you know, but like, it's, that, it's the resilience that comes from being uh, able to just sit with discomfort and to be able to tolerate it. Um, and that's what we're gifting our children as well as them growing up without a trauma, a traumatic imprint in their cells. We're also raising them to be incredibly resilient beings. Uh, so this leads me quite nicely onto failure. Um, I'm all about failure. Um, I don't believe it should be removed from the vocabulary um, or uh, the dictionary. Um, because I've called myself Sophie's Philosophy, I believe failure is a map. And I think it's really important as we get older and grow um, to look back at what we deem as failure um, and our distorted views of success um, and plot our feelings and emotions around that time. Um, but failure is seen as detrimental by many parents. And so I believe they end up projecting their aspirations and ideas onto their children and it is this where I believe um, that children lose their inner instincts. Um, what are your experience of this be? Oh that's really interesting. Yeah well I I'd absolutely agree with you because as soon as a parent puts upon a child an expectation whether it comes out of their own stuff or not it doesn't really matter but uh, that essentially tries to lead the child away from who that child is and wants to be. You're then, if you're successful in doing that, you're automatically shutting down their ability to just hear that inner wisdom. Mm -hmm. And when I was in my early twenties, I realized that I had loads of different voices, like loads of different narratives yeah. of tape recordings in my head. Yeah, and I had no idea what is me. A lot of it was my mum. some yeah. of it was my dad. Uh, some of it was a teacher that I'd had at school um, and I think there were probably other voices in there as well I, I used to be very involved with the church and some of it was um, certain leaders in the church mm -hmm. and I had to go on this journey of going I need to work out like what's my voice mm -hmm. and I realized that the only way I could do that was to trust what I thought was my voice follow it and then if I realized that I'd messed up, that that wasn't my voice after or whatever, okay. Yeah. I, you know, but I really had to go through that journey and it took me a long time. And I was doing other kind of personal development and healing work at the same time. But, you know, I've, I have come to a place where 
and know what my intuition sounds like. I know that I'm now making decisions for myself that I don't compromise. I mean, I've just, I'm currently in talks with a TV production company in Los Angeles and I've got through the first two rounds of shortlisting and they're, in, they're interviewing me again, actually, later on today. And they said to me, um, they'd like to interview me again without my nose piercing. And I said, well, I'm not willing to take my nose piercing out. I said, it's, for me, it's a deal breaker. If, if you're not willing to have me with my nose piercing, then that's fine. But that means you don't have me at all kind of thing. <laughs> and, and I'm not the only, you know, it's not like I'm the only person that they're looking at and therefore I have a strong bargaining position, but I just know that I have to just be me. I don't want to compromise. Yeah. And I've spent so many years of my life compromising either who I am, how I express myself, what I want to do with my time and energy and money. And I don't want to do that anymore. Whereas I look at my boys and, you know, they, I asked them, I said, well, you know, what do you feel on the inside? What's a yes for you? Like, how would you like to spend that time? What do you want to do with that money? And, you know, they, they go ahead and they do their thing, but they know, they know this voice on the inside mm. and, and they're not afraid to speak it out either, yeah. which sometimes comes out slightly, um, can be slightly blunt but what i've said is to the uk um casting person that they the los angeles guys have employed so she's not actually part of their company yeah. but i just said to her, listen even if they said to me we actually we want to choose you we want to offer you half a million dollars to do a series but you'd need to take it out i said the answer is no because yeah. the right opportunity will take me exactly as i am yeah. but it's very interesting because i wasn't raised in a way to have that belief about myself that who i am is enough mm -hmm. that i can express myself in a way that is true to me and I, that can change yeah. but i can express myself in a way that's true to me and that doesn't change my value um i wasn't raised like that at all and i know that my mum. she said to me before that you know she's been embarrassed at times because of how i've looked or because of how i've the decisions I've made and she's felt embarrassed because I'm her daughter therefore I'm you know that affects how she perceives people will think of her I just think well if people think that that's their business but um I think that for a lot of children they grow up with this kind of expectations being placed on them and they lose that connection with their inner guidance mm -hmm. they have no intuitive sense about what's right for them because they're so focused on what other people want for them or what other people expect of them and then you get these incredibly unhappy adults who yes. are on antidepressants or feeling incredibly lonely or you know in in jobs that they don't love and in relationships that and you know not good for them and and I just I think that's really really sad really sad and I, I think it's extraordinary like I'm it's not lost on me that I have this miraculous opportunity to have somehow seen the light out of that because yeah. I could you know I could be one of those people kind of I you know I have no idea why it was that I I happened to have that one week where everything got turned yeah. around yeah and I really resonate with that as well B because um I feel I'm reporting back um from childhood I don't know where it comes from but it's um not in an aggressive way but it's just from that inner child again 
of trust. Trust your children. Respect your children. Um, which, and, and in fact, respect is a, is a huge, huge part of it all as well, isn't it? You know, we, we, a lot of us all bang on about how, you know, children must respect our adults or our elders or, or the authorities, yet it feels that we don't respect them and um, respect in the workplace or in other hierarchical environments isn't there, yet we demand respect. How does that work? So just, just today, actually, uh, Jane Evans and I, we just recorded the fourth episode of our podcast. And um, it's the first of the two parts that we're doing on consent. And what we talk about is that, you know, the, the thing about consent is consent starts from, from day dot. And it's really about being respectful of this human being who happens to be a baby, a toddler, a child, a teenager. And there's that, I've heard it said before, like re respect has to be earned, not demanded or something. And I think it's really true. And I think actually children, children naturally are respectful beings because I think humans naturally are respectful beings until they're in a situation where they're not being respected. So much conventional parenting is very upside down. It demands respect, but doesn't offer respect back. Mm. And why, like you say, I mean, like, why should a child, like, why should a child respect someone who doesn't respect them back? Like, you know, and yet that's what we demand. And so children then learn, right, I must respect them, even though they don't respect me back, which then puts them in that very weak position, um, whether it's a professional environment or a relationship environment or a friendship, all those kinds of things. When we respect children, and when I say respect children, you know, it's, it's expressed in the way we speak to them, the tone of voice, the words we used. It's expressed in how we honour their interests, their preferences, their choices. Um, you know, respect is, is about every aspect of, you know, even down to, I remember one mum saying she had this whole thing about, um, the fact that her son wanted her to grate the cheese on, um, it was something about the way she grated the cheese. Anyway, I couldn't really understand why she wouldn't do the cheese the way he wanted. And I just couldn't get my head around it. And anyway, it just so happened a few months later, I happened to do um, a live video. And I was talking about my son. And I'd forgotten about this other woman. I was talking about my son because one of my boys liked his cheese grated on the large setting and my other son liked his cheese grated on the small setting because then it went curly. So whenever I grated their cheese, I mean, I'm with, well, I'm vegan now, so I don't buy cheese, but when I, when I was still eating uh, dairy and I would do their cheese them, I would do their cheese how they liked it because for me, it just was respectful of their preferences in the same way that I would grate my cheese the way I wanted it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. So um, it just so happened that this other mum was listening to this live video and she contacted me after she said, I was in tears listening to you. I just didn't understand that mm. it was about me just being respectful of who he was as a person. I could, I mean, in my head, I was like, <laughs> how is that not obvious? I mean, I, and I think sometimes I am, um, 
sometimes maybe I am a little bit oblivious to what those earliest steps are. Yeah. Joining the dots, like that's something that I reflect on quite a lot at the moment because I don't want to be too far ahead so no. that people are missing out on the change. But yeah, that respect starts with you as the parent and it's not coming from a place of I'm doing this in order to be respected back because that's just control and manipulation again. Yeah. It means still respecting them even when they're not respecting you. That is exactly it, isn't it? You've just got to be a constant. Um, now, also, what I found a really interesting observation, B, is in my research about parenting and nurturing children, is the lack of the word love. And so I'm really interested to hear what your thoughts are and what your approach is on this. Yeah, I know what you mean. And I think it's because, because I also don't talk about love that much because people say well of course I love them they're my child it's too kind of broad I think that to say it all comes back to love which I agree it does mm. um, and I don't know if you know Matt Khan but um yeah, yes yeah. yeah I mean oh god I just love Matt Khan and he's all you know he brings everything back to love and I I'm completely with him it all comes back to love but then I also know that what does it mean to mm. love your child Mm -hmm. And I think that actually looking at what it means to love your child is possibly more valuable in terms of communicating a non-controlling, non-fear-based approach to parenting than simply saying, just love your child. Yes. Because people do love their children, but despite loving their children, they still treat their children in horrendous ways. I don't think that an abusive parent is any less loving in the sense that I suspect the love they feel for their child is, is valid. Yes. But for whatever reason, they are abusive or neglectful or, you know, or the parent that yells at their child doesn't love their child any less. It just so happens that, you know, their own trauma comes out yeah. in yelling. And that's why I think that when you do your research, you're not come across the word love. Yeah. I, mean, well, I don't know. That might I might be wrong. I used to have a version of um, that famous passage about love. Love is kind. Love is patient. Mm. And I used to, I'd written it in really big letters on the wall of the airing cupboard, which was in the bathroom. So basically, you could sit on the loo and read it. And it was a real kind of like modern language version. Mm. And I it never got boring because I remember just always noticing an aspect of what it means to love someone that I was like, oh yeah, God, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm not very patient or flipping it, actually I'm holding a grudge right now. It's a really special thing to come back to that celebration of who we are as being perfectly imperfect. Yes. Because, you know, none of us love perfectly. Right. Break love down into what it actually means to love. Then at least that you can celebrate that you're winning on some of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, that's, so interesting and it makes you realize how complex love can actually be so I think the um operative word that I shall take from today though is um trust um because I just think if we can hand over that trust and let things happen then there can be no fear and without fear, then there is no anxiety. And then without the anxiety, 
there is no control. And if you can let things happen, who knows what will happen. But see that whatever happens, it's okay. And just trusting the process of childhood. Yeah. You know, before you even get to the point of trusting your children, just trusting the process that, you know, in the same way that your baby was able to grow from conception. Absolutely, yes. Birth, you did that all themselves. You didn't yeah. do anything. You just had a space in your body. You know, they created this umbilical cord so that they could eat all of those nutrients from you. <laughs> <laughs> you as the mother did diddly squat. You were purely a vessel. Purely yeah. a vessel. Yeah. And then suddenly we stop trusting the process of childhood. Once we stop trusting it, we try and get in the way and mess with it. Then we, you know, we create these problems that then make us feel even less able to trust mm. it. And actually we can trust that process. And if you're trusting the process, then it's much easier to trust the child within the process yeah. and to trust yourself. Absolutely. You've got to totally start trusting yourself because it's so easily been taken from us. And um, one of the things that I coach with women starting out in business or trying to find their, their path is to start to go with your feeling. And it can't always be easy to find, but trust whatever you do, you will gain whatever you need. Someone recently said to me that they were considering doing something, but um, they were scared of doing it. And I said to them, there's your answer right there. It's okay to be scared. Um, it generally means that you're going to learn something and you're embarking on, a, on an exciting adventure. There is no right or wrong. We can let things happen and trust all that happens has purpose. I know this can be hard to believe when bad, bad in inverted commas, things have happened. But trust and you will see you will have been gifted with empathy and understanding, curiosity, passion, anger, joy the lot. It all comes from every experience you have and meet in life. And these will come into play at some point in your life um, in the great things that you end up doing. So that's it. I would like to thank my guest, B Marshall, um, for joining me on Sophie's Philosophy and for all you guys for tuning in and listening. Um, if you want to stalk or follow B. You can find her on Instagram at B the Tree, B E A the Tree. Um, or also, she has a website at bmarshall.com, and you can see her story and find out a bit more about what B gets up to on there. Um, and I'm going to leave you with one of my philosophy questions, um, which is learning to trust myself is. Yeah, I'll leave that with you. Um, you can send them in to me via the website sophiesphilosophy.com. And on the next episode of Sophie's Philosophy, we are going to look at the word fail. There seem to be a lot of people that want to remove it from our everyday conversation and potentially the dictionary. But I don't think we should. Anyway, until then, question everything. Over and out. <laughs> <laughs>